Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Danny Strong's new film, Rebel in the Rye, which shines a light on the life of legendary author J.D. Salinger. The film details Salinger's relationship with socialite Una O'Neill, his experiences in World War II, and the writing process for his best-known novel, The Catcher in the Rye. Rebel in the Rye is Mr. Strong's feature film directorial debut. His other directing credits include episodes of the television series Empire. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Strong spoke with director Richard Shepard about filming Rebel in the Rye. During their conversation, Mr. Strong discusses how directing episodes of his television show Empire trained him to handle the fast pace of an indie film production, why he decided to re-edit the film after getting a standing ovation at Sundance, and how, as a kid, he received movie recommendations from his local video store clerk, Quentin Tarantino. Danny, let me ask you a question that everyone everyone has to just ask, but um, where'd you get that suit? <laughs> no. Um, why, why this? Um, <clears throat> when I, uh, I, I read, it was about five years ago, I, I just was in a bookstore in the East Village, and I came across a biography on J.D. Salinger that had just come out, the one that the film's based on. And when I was reading it, Knowing very little about Salinger and not looking to adapt this into a movie, just literally reading it, I was so um, taken by the fact that when I was in the early his early years, that all these things he was going through uh, reminded me of myself and all my friends that are writers. Literally, his ambition, his rejection, writing through the rejection, uh, the the lessons from the teacher. Uh, he sells one. He thinks he's got it. And then it's nine more months of rejection. It just was, I just thought, oh, wow, this, it, it's this story of J.D. Salinger is the story of what it means to be a writer. And then I get to the war, and it became... Uh, a very different story. It was a story that I I was not familiar with, with him or with myself or with my friends, which is a story of trauma and a journey through PTSD. And then to see him in some ways self-medicate, figure out on his own about meditation and yoga when they didn't even have a name for PTSD. And then he's finally able to write this book about this troubled kid in a mental institution after he himself had been institutionalized, um, I thought, wow, this is the story of how this great American novel that affected millions of people for decade after decade came from a veteran, came from trauma. I thought, that's profound. That's, I was so moved by that. Um, and I thought, this should be a movie. And, uh, and that, was, that was it. It was, it was literally, you know, first it was the journey of the writer, and then it was this, this 
this story of how art came from trauma, and it seemed to me in telling his story, you're telling the ultimate story of a writer because he would go on to spend 50 years of his life writing and not showing it to anybody. And, it, you know, you could look at it two ways. You could look at it as it's, he's a weirdo, he's strange, as many as the common way to look at him, or you could look at it as, wow, that's the ultimate artist, uh, someone who's willing to just write for 50 years for the sake of writing. Well, you get that in the movie. You fi- I feel like I finally understood, in a way, why he didn't want to publish. You wrote decided not to sell not to set this up in a normal way you used your own money to to option the book to direct and that's a different way of normally doing it that was very entrepreneurial did you were you doing that because you said this could be my first movie or were you like i just want complete control from the beginning and figure that out well it was it was sort of a combo of two it was more of I, I wanted to get it made, and I wanted to direct it. And I knew I wanted to direct it. And I thought, if I optioned the book, which I did, I optioned the book from the biographer, and then I wrote it on spec. I didn't sell it to anyone, because I was concerned that if I sold it to someone, A, they wouldn't make it, and it would just sit on a shelf, or B, they would kick me off it as the director. And I really wanted to direct it, and I thought, if I'm attached... I mean, if I'm writing it on spec and I own the book, you can't kick me off because I own it. So it was a matter of um, make the movie or not, I don't want your money for the script. I mean, I love that because it just gave you the power to be able to make this movie. Oh, thank you. A few scattered applause. Yeah. Uh, That's all right. You guys don't have to. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Well, I'll beg for applause later. Trust me. The, the idea of... of of that is not what everyone always does. You know, you go for the money or whatever, and you were trying to control this. Once you had written the script, was it something that, was this a long process to get made? Was it weirdly difficult or not easy, easy? Um, well, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't really a long process. I, I mean, what stopped the process was me having other projects as a writer. To make money. To make money. Um, I mean, I sound so crass to support myself. How about that? But it was, um, <clears throat> it, it actually, once I had the script, I took it to a few producers, uh, my friend Jason Schumann, and then we took it to Bruce Cohen, the producer of American Beauty and, and Milk, and uh, two great producers. Um, we took it to financiers, and immediately someone wanted, wanted it. But then once we had a financier, it doesn't mean they just gave me a blank check. It was we had to go get talent attached and play that whole game. And that took some time, but it came together. I mean, it it came together in a few years. And let's talk about that process, because in in the meantime, you are writing many movies. You created uh, Empire. You you directed on Empire. I assume, in a way, not only because you were dying to direct, but also in preparation to get this movie going and to learn what to do. Yeah, I mean, I've been wanting to direct for several years now, and I viewed um, when Empire went, it got picked up, which I never believed it was going to get shot, and then I never believed it was going to get picked up. So then when it got picked up, um, I thought, oh, I could direct an episode of Empire. Like, that could be great. That could be a, a great way to direct for the first time. 
And then, and then, and then I was, I got an episode, and it went really well. And then they offered me four more for the next season. So um, it was, it turned into um, this amazing way to to start directing. And I ended up, uh, I didn't direct the four season two, but I directed two of them. And then they had me direct pickup scenes whenever they had to pick up stuff. I was sort of the, the cleanup guy on Empire, which is sort of funny since I'd only been directing three right. episodes of television but nonetheless I became that so it was uh it just was this amazing experience to get a lot of experience directing before I went and made this movie and I shot the movie in 26 days and I never could have done that had I not directed those Empire episodes it would have been a disaster I mean I love this movie I cannot believe you did it in 26 days I mean yeah me neither a, it is a big it's a big story a period piece it is, yeah. it's, I mean, it's quite, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but you started as an actor and uh, made a, had a career as an actor and segued into writing and acting. And did you, when you started directing Empire, did the, did your acting background give you a confidence level that you might not have had? Did it, did it sort of make you realize that you could actually get to a place where you would be directing people like Kevin Spacey in a movie and feel confident in that job. Yeah, it 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 uh, it was so funny my experience on the very first episode of Empire I was um behind 3 hours within 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm behind. I don't even know what happened. I blinked. <laughs> You're eating a bagel. Yeah, I'm eating a bagel and I'm behind three hours. And then I remember thinking, I was so, was so much anxiety that I remember thinking at around lunchtime, uh, this is only going to be seven more days and you never have to do this ever again. <laughs> that was my, and, lunch, and then all of a sudden, a few hours after lunch, I found that I caught up. And then by the end of the day, I was hooked, line and sinker. Right. I was loved it. I was, oh, you, ah, you know, and I was just like running the set. And um, and I think that my experience as an actor, um, I've been an actor forever. I mean, I was did was theater major in college, and then was just doing lots of television all through my twenties. And so my experience as an actor was crucial. It's, it's sort of everything with my with my just working with the actors, blocking scenes. Um, and then cinematography has just been this whole lesson right. that I've loved. I mean, I've just, it's one of the things that I've found so much, so fascinating. And, uh, and it's been the most exciting because it's the newest thing for me. And um, doing Empire, I would try to shoot all my episodes as cinematically as possible. I just, we're not, forget this, that if we're doing it, we just treat it like we're shooting a movie. And it's the philosophy of the show anyways to shoot them like that well, you so. could see it from your first episode you directed i felt like wow you're you're really moving the camera in a smart way and telling the story visually and it was like a i thought it was sort of a statement as a first especially on a television show which has its own style and its own thing even though you had created it you didn't direct the pilot yeah but it felt very specifically unique almost from the from, from the first episode of well i was trying so thank you yeah. i mean it's totally what i was going for um, and it was, but I also had the freedom as, the, as an EP on the show and the co-creator right. that I could sort of do things <laughs> that maybe other people didn't feel comfortable doing. But uh, but it, but that was the spirit of the show too, was to 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 shoot them like that. I want to talk about casting and 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 all of that too. But in terms of the visuals, as a writer and an actor, the the learning of the visual language when you were prepping this movie, 
What movies were you watching with your DP? Can you talk about any of that process or photos you were looking at, like in terms of trying to find a visual language to tell sort of a huge mm. story, but in a very personal way? Yeah, it was um, it was very challenging. We we watched Capote, um, and I watched. Um, I at first I thought I was going to shoot it handheld verite, and I watched a number of films like that, and it felt inappropriate for the film. Mm. It felt that the film was telling to me this sort of epic story through the years and that and that, that verite style, which I love and sort of instantly looks cool and, right. and artistic, right, um, felt for a much more intimate relationship type piece. Um, but we really, <clears throat> we talked a lot about Saul Leiter photography. He was a photographer in the 1950s and it was New York City in the 50s and uh, people that are isolated, people that are alone, shooting through frames, shooting through windows, and uh, that definitely was was our, you know, it was, we, it was sort of our mantra. We talked about it a lot, but at the end of the day, we I I shot listed the whole film by myself. Then I threw that away, and me and the DP Kramer Morgenthau did an amazing job. Shot listed the whole film together, and then we get to set, and we have no time. Right, so, you have two hours. <laughs> we have two hours, so so scenes that we had, you know, six shots for. So how can we do this in two setups or three setups? Um, and and it became this sort of being thrown into the deep end of the pool of of what do you really need, and then what can you do on top of what you really need just to add these sort of flourishes that we were we wanted to get and there's there's a lot of them and i want to talk about post because i can i can see things that you did uh in editing which of course is a lot like writing and i want to get to that but let's first talk about casting i, I would think the idea of casting jd salinger you probably had a lot of actors wanting to be in this movie what drew you to Nicholas, who's great in the movie? Well, it was a very daunting decision because I believed that the whole film would live or die on the actor that played this part, and that thus, since this is my first movie, my entire career was going to live or die on the actor who played this part, and so thus this decision will be the most important decision I will make <laughs> in my directing career. That was, that was my mindset. It's very sort of Jewish of me, right? You know? This, and it's like this nervous... I'm going to ruin my whole career if I don't do this right, you know, um, which is kind of how I do everything, although not so much with no, the Woody not, Allen not voice, Woody but, Allen but, but it's inside of me, <laughs> the tension. And so I, um, I watched reels of all the actors over a long period of time. Um, I took months. And when I got to Nicholas Holt, uh, from movie to movie, he was unrecognizable in a way that reminded me of Gary Oldman. Um, I thought, oh, wow, this guy is a 25-year-old Gary Oldman. This is an unbelievable character actor in this leading man body. So I put him on my list of top choices. And there's some really neat actors in that age range. And I asked them, five of them, to audition, and four of them said yes. And um, his audition was terrific. I mean, it was literally just auditioned and got the part. Right. But it was I was leaning towards him. Uh, before the auditions, and my hope was, I think this is Nick, but we'll see. And then after the audition, it was, yeah, yeah, it's definitely Nick. Uh, was just as a specific minor note, was there a discussion about why why didn't you use age makeup with him? 
Was there a decision of that? I mean, I, I loved it. I was yeah. with him. It just seemed like I was with him the whole time. But I noticed, you know, that there wasn't any. Well, it's a in in the film he's twenty to thirty two, so it's a little tricky, right? Right? What do you what do you do? What do you do with that? And then at the same time, my hope was that <clears throat> I didn't want you to feel time that time was passing, if that makes sense. I wanted the story to feel uh, as tight and contained as it could feel, even though it was going over those 12 years. So it was, well, if we're doing makeup and we're doing these things, it'll kind of draw attention to something right. that I'm trying not to draw attention to. I'm trying to just make it feel like it's a natural flow from college into the war, into post-traumatic stress, into finally being able to write the book into the book makes him go away. And even though uh, that took place over, like I said, about 12 years, I didn't necessarily need the audience to know that. We timestamp it twice, 1939, 1946. If you're just sort of following that, you don't really even know it's 12 years. Right. And um, so I thought makeup would get in the way of that. Then there was the other issue, which is uh, I couldn't, do it. I wouldn't make. I wouldn't be able to make my days right. if I had to do makeup and take makeup off because we would have. He'd be aged in one scene and then not aged in the next scene. I was shooting five scenes a day, and I could only control. And I looked at the schedule. You know, how can we possibly do all I love of that? It. So ultimately, a logistical problem became a creative uh, solution in a way. But I was leaning towards that anyways. I was sort of just nervous about. Oh, at the end, we're making him look older. And, you know, when he does say uh, he doesn't want to publish anymore, he actually does have aged makeup on. There, it doesn't really read, though. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but it, it, it just it didn't really read, to be honest with you. I think that we just it was too subtle um, because we had this sort of bias against it anyways. You had worked with Kevin Spacey in Recount, which you wrote. And uh, he's so good in this movie. He's He's... You just love every moment he's on screen. Was that what? Tell me about that experience and and sort of is that a situation? If you write and produce a a, a movie and do the awards circuit, you, you have Kevin Spacey's number on your phone and you call him up and say, "Hey, come do my movie." How do you get Kevin Spacey in your film? No, I didn't do that. I mean, I had a great relationship with Kevin on Recount, and we would see each other a little bit over the years, but it's it's not like we're best friends. Um, although a very perfectly cordial relationship and he's always been really nice to me but it was um i went through proper channels and gave it to his manager uh and his manager loved it and gave it to him with the highest recommendation you have to do this movie and he said yes in 48 hours right so it was and, and then he called me and just told me how much he wanted to do it so gotta love that yeah i mean that was amazing um because then it was greenlit basically right. because then with nick and kevin it was the they equaled the foreign value which was able to to really get the film made so you shoot this movie in 26 days you start cutting it you get into sundance which is of course amazing dream come true you premiere it at sundance uh-huh and Shortly after that, you decide that you want to change the movie. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, we premiered it at Sundance, and it was to a standing ovation. 
just so exciting. I mean, it's, it's all I dreamed of when I was a theater major in college was to be in a movie that was in Sundance. <laughs> never happened. I never got cast in a movie that was good enough to go to Sundance. And then the first film I direct gets in. I'm so thrilled. And then it was just, there was a sort of a polarized response to the movie. And <clears throat> I also had rushed it to get into the festival and realized that key elements weren't playing and weren't clear enough. Um, and it really bothered me. Uh, the PTSD story wasn't, people weren't getting that it was ultimately a PTSD story, that that was one of uh, this, I mean, the whole second half of the film is, is this guy who's traumatized, who's recovering, not recovering, goes away to the woods, right? Does he ever really recover? I mean, I don't think he does personally, but that's, that's the whole second half of the movie. So I thought I need to make this clear. I was also looking to, um, get deeper inside his head. I had this voiceover track in the film where I used his writing to arc his inner journey, and it was too esoteric. Mm. It wasn't plain. People weren't getting things about him that I thought you would get from the writing narration, and how the writing would change would be how the character was arcing. And it, it was one of those things. It just didn't work, but it didn't bump people uh, previously when we were screening it because it sounded good, you know, like, right. like it, it just had a nice flow and was cool. I can write. Yeah, I mean, it, it was cool, but so, so that's when I came up with the idea of him opening the film with him in the mental institution and writing the letter from the mental institution to make clear, it's, we open the movie with a traumatized guy, and then that letter to Wit, I was able to create a voiceover track that just got you in his head, and... I just wanted to bring some more clarity and some more depth. And then it had this side effect, which is it made the film much more emotional um, because I think people were empathetic with him right from the beginning, where before he was kind of a, a little bit of a smart-ass prick, right. And, right? And so, which I found entertaining, <laughs> but some people found put off. But it was really, um, really trying to make, bring more clarity to those issues. And then it made the third act work better. I, it, was, it was really amazing how much it it did for the film but put me in the situation so sundance is finished you sell your movie to ifc from sundance yeah. and you wake up one morning and you're like i, I can do better that's right that, that was you, exactly I, I, it was the next morning what is the phone who's the phone call to everybody and what is the reaction after they've just spent well millions of dollars let's on wait and see what ifc thinks well <laughs> Okay, those are some good ideas. I mean, and I kind of figured it out in about a week, what I wanted to do. And um, then IFC buys it, which I was so thrilled. I think it's such a cool brand, and I thought it was perfect for the film. And then they said, well, let's test it and see. Test the version that had been at Sundance? At Sundance. Or, right. And then it tests high. And I'm in this weird position where I'm rooting for a lower test score <laughs> that I don't get. And I'm like, oh, my God, this movie tested too high. And I'll, I tested 81, and they're thrilled. Sundance is thrilled. The, everyone's thrilled. Everyone's like, we're done. Let's go home. And I said, no, I, can, I promise I can make it better. So basically we made this deal, which was I could recut it, but I have to test higher than the Sundance version, which is fair. <laughs> like I right, can't recut right. it and then give them a 74 and expect they them. Because they bought the Sundance Because they bought the Sundance version. So that was the deal. And then I had two weeks to recut it. So I recut it in two weeks. And then about eight days into the recut, I watched it. And I thought, that's the movie. And it was this weird 
peaceful thing, too. I'm like, oh, that's it. And I looked at the editor. I'm like, that's the movie, right? And he said, yeah. And then we fist bumped and then went on and just kept, like, fixing <laughs> stuff. And then we tested the film, and it tested way higher than 81, right. which was a thrilling night because I had put so much into it. And then, and then IFC, they were so cool. When they saw the new version, they really liked it, and they were, they, they were with me. They were, fingers crossed, to test better than, than the Sundance version. So there, it was, uh, everyone was on the same page. They just wanted the numbers to make them feel better, and then and they got them. So. I mean, it's, 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 it, I love the idea that uh, you just weren't finished with it. That, you know, I just is, knew I could your, make it better. It's your, it's your, and do you look at it now and you're like, well, I could actually work on that scene? Or are you done with it now? I'm done with it. Yeah, I'm done with it. I think the, the, um, I cut a lot of pages to get a greenlit with my budget. And so I sometimes wonder if the longer version of the script that were just scenes I never even shot, you know, right. what that would have been. Um, but I, it doesn't keep me up at night. So I think that the, for what I had, the budget I had, I think that the film, um, I think it's a really neat movie and it's the story I wanted to tell, which was the journey of the artist. Um, you know, what it means to be a writer and to tell the story through a veteran who was traumatized, who created his masterpiece from trauma. Um, and yet that masterpiece, along with the trauma, sent him away <laughs> to the woods where he would never return. Um, I, I, that was the story I wanted to tell, and, 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 and we did it. You did really, really well. Thank you. Um, what is, what is, so you, you opened your movie a week ago, two weeks ago now? Two weeks, week, so this is the second weekend. Yes. And it's still, it's just sort of starting to play around the country, and you've been doing a lot of Q&As, I assume. Um, one of the things I've read was that you, uh, knew Tarantino when you were a kid. Yes. Tell us about that. Uh, when I was 11 years old, he was my video store clerk. Is, so, right, he's famous that Quentin Tarantino was a video store clerk. That was my video store. <laughs> that was my childhood video store, was that, was that video store. And I spent so much time in the video store talking to Quentin that my nickname was Little Quentin. And, and they would, and they would, I'd come in and they'd go, Quinn, little Quentin's here. And I'd sit there and I'd talk to him. And we, I mean, I'd be in there for an hour, hour and a half at a time. And, um, and rented all these random movies that Quentin recommended. Like what? Do you I, remember any? Fierce City. Uh-huh. Oh, remember Melanie Fierce Griffin. City? Mary, uh, Year of the Dragon. Love it. Um, I, I watched a lot of Hitchcock and I don't remember if that was Quentin's influence um, but I was, even when I was five, six, seven years old, I was into adult movies, all, all that jazz I loved in Chinatown and real Good random taste. movies for a, for a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. <laughs> I remember I actually saw Chinatown. I think Quentin recommended Chinatown. And I remember seeing it when I was 11 and it really messed me up because I didn't know the, the bad guys could win like that. And I just said, I remember turning to my mom being like, they're gonna. It's gonna all work out, right? No. And she said, "No, it's Chinatown." So, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, has Quinton seen the movie? Uh, I don't know. All right. All right. All right. Danny Strong, ladies and gentlemen. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. Don't forget, you can check out past episodes of the Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming months as award season approaches, so stay tuned. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the great discussions we have coming up. 
And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.